This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. Ignition. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major Fantastic. It's The Takeout. Major. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major, that's nonsense. Major Garrett. And you should know better. Thank you. So if you're listening closely, folks, that thank you, thank you, thank you, you heard at the very tail end. Well, that's the thank you, thank you, thank you from the now 46th President of the United States, Joe Biden. We're recording The Takeout the day after Inauguration Day, America's Day, as the President said during his inaugural address. And I want to say a special welcome to those who are finding the show or did last week for the first time on the podcast platform. Our numbers were almost four times higher than they are in a typical week. And I'm sure that happened because of the news environment we were in. And I regret that the news environment was such that so many people are interested in listening to the voice of Adam Kinzing, a Republican from Illinois who voted to impeach President Trump and who had vivid recollections of the atrocities committed on the United States Capitol on January 6th. I'm sorry that news environment is such that it was so topical and so many of you found the show, but now that you have, let me tell you what we do here. We talk to people in Washington, D.C., people in positions of power. We have a long-running conversation. It goes for 45 minutes. It's not edited in any respect at all. Everything our guests say is exactly as they say it. We never have a post-show conversation about, well, you took me out of context or anything like that. I created this show for exactly that purpose. I live in a medium, radio and television, where a lot of things are edited down. And I wanted a place where people in positions of influence and power in Washington, D.C. came and answered questions fully and completely in their voice exactly as they rendered them. And so you can hear them and judge them for yourself. So that's what The Takeout is all about. And I welcome you to the show if you're coming into it for the very first time, as many of you did last week. We're also on more than 75 radio stations around the country, including SiriusXM, POTUS Channel 124, on CBSN, our digital streaming platform. You're watching me now from my dining room, as you have been since the pandemic began. And of course, on all great podcast platforms. So with that preamble out of the way, let me introduce our special guest this week. Returning to the show, Congresswoman... Pramila Jayapal from the great state of Washington, Democrat, progressive. Congresswoman, it's great to see you. Great to talk to you. Thanks for joining us. It's so great to be with you, Major. Sorry, we're not in a restaurant, but this is the second best. (laughs) Exactly. We'll get back to them as soon as we are able. Congresswoman, I want to give you an opportunity because it's the day after the inauguration. What were your impressions? What did you witness? What did you feel? Well, uh, as you may know, I was uh, caught in that secure room after the insurrection and contracted COVID-19. So yesterday was my 
last day of isolation. So I was not able to attend in person the inauguration. But let me tell you, I watched every minute of it and I felt incredible joy, relief, and also pain, pain that uh, the inauguration had become essentially a fortress in order to protect the president and the vice president. But um, I think the three things that stuck out to me from the inauguration itself were number one, um, I've heard uh, President Biden's speech called a, a, a love poem to the truth. That struck me as well. The calling out of the need for us to focus on facts and the truth because there was a lie in play for a very long time about the election and frankly, it's still going. And whether or not this was a legitimate uh, election that led to the incitement of insurrection by the former president. So I thought that was very, very important. The second thing was the highlighting of people who are so courageous in our country and were part and parcel of delivering the election to Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. That is everyone from Eugene Goodman, the Capitol Police officer who led insurrectionists in a different direction from the open Senate doors, who was featured bringing Kamala Harris down the steps, but also uh, the firefighter, um, African-American woman who, who gave the Pledge of Allegiance. And of course, Georgia delivered this election in the Senate to Democrats. So that was very important. And then finally, um, unbelievable poet laureate who uh, just, Amanda Gorman, who is just so phenomenal in her nuance about the difference between who we are and who we wish to be as a country, that striving towards the more perfect union, uh, just so beautiful and so um, deeply thoughtful about this moment that we're in. And then my third thing is just, oh my goodness, Kamala Harris is our vice president, shattering so many ceilings. Um, and she and I were sworn in on the same day. I, the first South Asian American woman in the house, she, the first South Asian American woman and first black woman uh, or uh, second black woman in the Senate. And now she is the first woman, the first South Asian American and the first black American to serve as vice president. Couldn't be more joyful. All of that is true. Uh, how was your COVID-19 experience? How was your health during it? How are you now? Well, to be honest, I was incredibly angry because I knew that I contracted it from that secure lockdown room where my colleagues on the other side of the aisle refused to wear a mask. And I know that because I tested negative the day before. I tested negative five days before. So I have been testing negative consistently. That is the only place really that I was exposed in that significant way. Um, I had uh, symptoms that were more than uh, sort of flu-like, um, not mild, I would say moderate symptoms, fever, chills, et cetera, for the first three days. And then most of those symptoms went away. I do have uh, other comorbidities around asthma that have been activated, but I'm happy to say I went out for my first walk today. I feel great. And um, building up my endurance, of course, it does take a, a toll on your body, but uh, I feel really good and I'm so happy to breathe the air and be outside. Did it require any hospital visit or special medi medication interventions? Well, you know, I, because of these other things that I have, yes, I had various, various treatments that um, address some of the things I was feeling. Um, but I, I would say I'm one of the lucky ones and I, my heart just goes out to uh, all the families who have been affected with this infected with this virus and the 400,000 people who died, um, who have already died. That's the same number of people that we lost during the entirety of World War II. And so I just am so um, 
relieved is just not sufficient that we will finally have a president in the White House who takes this virus seriously and is going to leverage every tool of the federal government to provide assistance to really defeat the virus and also to help people who are suffering um, with lack of jobs, lack of health care, all the other things that people are feeling right now. You took the words of someone else to describe the president's inaugural address as a love poem to the truth. To this question of the truth and what is visible, I wonder what your thoughts are. You said you were mad about what happened on January 6th. You were in a secure place with other members of Congress, Republicans who wouldn't wear a mask, even though one of the people elected in their conference before even being sworn in died of the virus. How do you square that truth with a rejection of basic methods to deal with something which killed one of their own membership? Well, I called it selfish, cruel idiocy in my statement after I learned that I had tested positive. Um, uh, Frankly, I, I told reporters right after that day that I was sure that I would get COVID-19, that it was a super spreader event. And as you know, many of my colleagues have tested positive from that room as well, including Bonnie Watson Coleman, who uh, is a cancer survivor and you know really tenuous in terms of her strength. And, and luckily she's doing very well. But I don't know how to describe the inability, uh, unwillingness of my Republican colleagues to actually believe in truth and the facts. And that is not only um, in terms of COVID this entire year, you can't defeat a virus that you don't even acknowledge is real. And so it's no surprise that we are where we are, this terrible place in terms of lives lost and people infected. But let's talk about January 6th as well. This was a lie that was perpetuated for months, by the way, before the election, by the president, sitting president of the United States, and all of the Republican allies around him that also perpetrated it, as well as members of the conservative media um, and all of the places that, um, you know, on, on social media that were perpetuating this lie that this was an unfair election. And of course, after the election, for two months, the sitting president of the United States refused to accept the election results as real, used every opportunity to try to challenge those results. All of those challenges failed and then incited an insurrection on the United States Capitol, the worst attack on the United States Capitol since the war of 1812, led by white nationalists and white supremacists who killed a Capitol police officer and chanted for Mike Pence to be hung and for Nancy Pelosi to be killed. I can't overestimate or, you know, sort of uh, articulate how close our democracy came to being overthrown. And we survived, but barely. And we are strong and resilient. And I think we now have in place a president, a Democratic Senate and a Democratic House that will start to take these threats seriously. That is the voice of Washington Congresswoman Democrat Pramila Jayapal, our special guest. When we come back for segment two, I want to talk to her about her actual lived experience that day of January 6th, because I don't think it can be recorded too many times or too many places what people who were actually there at the time lived through and the trauma they experienced then. I'm Major Garrett. This is The Takeout. Back for segment two in just a second. 
This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. If you like this show, and I'm so glad you do, you wouldn't be here if you didn't, I want to suggest you take a long listen to my other podcast called The Debrief. It is a radio documentary that we do once a week on a big topic. Last week was all about the inauguration, inaugurations past. This coming week will be about not just the vaccine. We did a whole program on that when the vaccine was just about to be rolled out, but why that rollout has not worked out very well. We're going to get, dig deeply into that. So I highly recommend that. Available on all the best podcast platforms. Remember, The Debrief with me, Major Garrett. Pramila Jayapal, Democratic Congresswoman from Washington, progressive leader in the House of Representatives, is our special guest. So Congresswoman, describe for the audience, if you will, as vividly as you can, what you experienced on January 6th. Well, I was um, in the gallery, and for people who don't know the the House chamber, there's the main floor, um, which is where we usually sit as members. Uh, Because of COVID, um, we were limited in the numbers of people that could be either in the gallery, which is one floor above the main floor, kind of overlooking the chamber, um, or on the floor. So I was one of the people that was allowed into the gallery. Um, There were maybe about a dozen of us in the section where I was, uh, members of Congress, and uh, we started hearing the noise and seeing the posts on social media, perhaps even before our colleagues on the floor, because the gallery is quite shallow. So you're very close to the doors that lead into the rest of uh, the, the Capitol. And so we could hear and saw on our social media that the Capitol had been breached, uh, we saw a picture of on social media of uh, the individual that has been called Flexicuff man in the Senate, um, uh, retired army uh, general we've now heard, um, or Colonel, I forget, but we saw a lot of that unfolding. We were told, we saw Speaker Pelosi and Leader Hoyer being taken off the floor and, and, and wait, let me interrupt just for a second. When you say we, you're with other members, correct? I was with about a dozen members um, in that section. And so we, there were a couple of Capitol Police there. I will tell you that they seemed quite confused about what to do. Um, people were yelling, close the doors, close the doors, as we heard the sound of the uh, mob coming closer and closer. Um, and we saw the pictures on social media. People, the Capitol Police were yelling back to each other, who's got the key? Um, so it was quite chaotic. Uh, we were suddenly told, uh, just as we saw members being ushered off the floor, to immediately pull out our gas masks from under the seats and to put those gas masks on. That is quite difficult to, to pull those gas masks out. Most of us have had no training on how to use those gas masks. 
We were told to hold them in one hand, to uh, get down on the floor, um, as close to the floor as we could, because there was an active shooter. And we were also told to move quickly to the other side of the gallery. I don't know how to describe how difficult that is because each section is divided by rail railings and you have to crawl under the railings to get into the next section. And I should just add that I had had a total knee replacement surgery five weeks before. So I was with a cane and trying to crawl under these railings and uh, then at one point we were just told quickly, get down to the floor, get down to the floor. That is the footage that many people saw of me and my colleagues right at the railing. Um, I was trying to stretch my legs out because I couldn't bend my knee. Um, I had my gas mask in one hand, my cane in the other hand, ready to put the gas mask on if we had to exit. But it was uh, a terrifying time because we didn't know if anybody was gonna come and get us. All the other members had been taken off the floor down in the chamber below, but we were still stuck there. And the banging on the doors had started from the insurrectionists. And again, it's just about 15 feet from where I was at the bottom uh, on the floor to where the doors of the gallery are that open up. And uh, so when we were finally able to leave, we walked outside and saw that the insurrectionists who had been banging on the gallery doors were spread eagled on the floor with their hands above their heads and uh, our, you know, Capitol Police around them with their guns drawn. Those were the people that almost made it into the gallery to, um, to attack us. And then it was you know, a very long journey to get to the secure location, which was the place that, but there were probably more than a hundred members in there. Uh, again, many Republicans not wearing masks. Did you, from your vantage point up in the gallery, see those people on the floor, members and otherwise, as it's been recounted publicly, placing furniture in front of the gallery doors and then standing with makeshift weapons or actual weapons to try to stop the insurrectionists from getting in? Could you, did you have the, either the ability, meaning you weren't doing something else, or the presence of mind to see that down there going on? And if you did see it, what on earth did that yes. trigger in your mind? That all happened as we were on the floor and I was right at that front railing. So I, and by then I had moved from the democratic side where we started the gallery to the essentially above the Republican side. So my view was straight down onto the doors of the main chamber. And we saw that the uh, Capitol police had barricaded the doors with furniture and were standing in a semicircle with guns drawn at the insurrectionists, we heard the shot that was fired, which we now believe was probably the shot of the Capitol Police officer that killed one of the um, insurrectionists. But we heard that shot happen. Um, in the gallery, one of the challenges was there was no furniture to barricade the doors. All of the chairs are bolted into the ground. So the only thing between us and the mob outside was a few Capitol Police officers, each one standing at the door holding the doors. And, uh, and so we could see all of that unfold. And there was a moment, I will tell you, I, I ended up starting a, a text chain called the gallery group um, for those of us that were stuck in the gallery because it was extremely traumatic because nobody, we had no idea if anybody was gonna come and get us and get us out of there. Um, we were not with the rest of the members who were on the floor. So early in my career, I covered police news in three different cities in our country, Amarillo, Las Vegas, Houston, and I 
got to understand what people experience in a trauma of either a violence, robbery, murder, rape, or car accidents, something that is suddenly very traumatic. And one of the things I learned, and it's not a particularly powerful insight, but it's worth reminding ourselves, in moments like that, you think your worst thought. What's the worst thing that could happen to me in this moment that I'm in right now that 20 minutes ago, an hour ago, I never could have imagined I would be in? What's the worst thing that could happen to me right now? In some cases it happens, in some cases it doesn't. But almost always you think to yourself, what's the worst thing that could happen? What did you think? Well, I thought I wouldn't make it out of there. I, I thought that it was possible that I wouldn't make it out of there and that the, the mob would make it in and that they, we could hear that they had guns. And I think the trauma that you speak of is real. Uh, all of us have been dealing with that. We as members um, have... Me- you know, meaning that they would come in and do one of two things, beat you or shoot you. Correct. That's what you were thinking. Yes, it was a flash thought through my head Um, And then I immediately went to what am I going to do? So I had my gas mask in my right hand. It's very heavy, the gas mask. So I figured I could use that to try to fight people off. And I had my cane in my left hand. You know, my big concern, to be totally frank, was that I didn't know if I could get off the floor. I just had knee surgery and I couldn't. Uh, it was it was not easy for me to get on the floor. It was not easy for me to get off the floor. And I wasn't sure how I was going to make it out of there, even if I was given a chance to make it out of there. And so um, all of those things are, are, you know, flash minute thoughts. And luckily, I am extremely good under pressure. I always have been. And so I will say that my overwhelming thought was about how I was going to get out of there, how we were all going to get out of there. Um, and not about what could happen to me. That was a momentary, yes, I understand this is what may happen. And then immediately jumping into what am I going to do? So uh, I don't want to short circuit this. So I want to just let this question come to you. We're going to take a break because the answer is too important for me to ask you to try to summarize it in 25 seconds. And I'm not going to do that. But the question I want to put to you is for you, for your colleagues who went through this uh, on either side of the aisle, uh, is post-traumatic stress something you are dealing with now and you imagine you will be dealing with for some period of time? That's a question I want to put to you. We're going to take a break right now. I'm Major Garrett Pramila Jayapal's our special guest, Democratic Congresswoman from Washington. That answer on the other side of this break. Stay tuned. CBS News. This is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. You heard me set up this segment, or at least the beginning of it, just a moment ago. Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, Democratic Congresswoman from Washington. Post-traumatic stress. Living with it, do you imagine you will be, or are your colleagues? Yes. Um, I think that's the simple answer. I think uh, we have had each other to talk to. Um, We have had some facilitated conversations with employee assistants, counselors. Um, Those conversations are going on within the entire uh, Democratic side. I I assume my Republican friends are dealing with similar things. But I will tell you that the other piece of post-traumatic stress is uh, how you assess the threats in front of you today. So what kind of 
um, assurance do you have that you are that you are safe today and that the things that you experienced on that day don't continue to haunt you? And I just want to spend a minute on that because I think it's very important. The truth is that we are not sure which of our Republican colleagues, if any, participated in these attacks on the Capitol. There are Republican colleagues who are carrying guns onto the floor and refusing to go through metal detectors, which is the new rule of the House chamber. There are Republican colleagues who even after the insurrection attack happened on January 6th, continue to perpetrate the lie of the election being stolen and um, being fraudulent. And so there is this real sense of serving with people who have refused to accept reality and, and actually operate in an alternative reality. A known QAnon conspiracy theorist now serves in the House chamber. And so I think that that is also part of what makes this very difficult, that people are still afraid uh, of even trusting our own colleagues in the chamber. And I can't imagine a time in recent history where that has been true, where we have been concerned about whether or not we can be safe from our own colleagues. And I don't want to over-exaggerate that. We're still looking at the investigation and what the investigations show, but I can tell you it's a very, very real concern. So a moment ago, you used the word participated in uh, the insurrection. What do you mean by that participated in? Again, I want to be clear that we're waiting for the investigations, but anybody who aided and abetted the insurrectionists, whether it was in terms of um, you know, assisting with the planning, uh, turning a blind eye to what they knew was going to happen, uh, participating with violent language on social media or in person at the, at the uh, rally right before Donald Trump sent the mob to the Capitol to attack the Capitol and try to overturn the elections. Uh, all of those things I would consider participating. And so we are waiting for the full investigations to take place, but certainly reports that are out there and continue to surface uh, are troublesome. And so until we have some clarity around that and some uh, accountability, if that did take place, I think it will, it's a very fraught uh, time on the floor. And when you have our colleagues refusing to continue, continuing to refuse to respect the rules of the chamber, um, going through metal detectors, uh, obeying Capitol Police who are telling them what they need to do, wearing masks on the floor, it of course raises the tensions extremely high and brings the trust very low. Do you believe any members or their staffs participated in these tours that some of your colleagues said they witnessed the day before January 6th? Well, I signed on to that letter of concern from Mikey Sherrill. Mm -hmm. um, I did not see it myself, but I shared the concerns that were raised in that letter. Now, again, all of these things have to be investigated. But the fact that we are so close to, uh, you know, not, not being able to clearly say that members of Congress had nothing to do with this I think is, is a real challenge for the state of our democracy. When do you expect that we will know the answer to that question? And once that answer is 
rendered, what will the House do? I mean, if you have members who did something that could, in the eyes of the majority of the House, threaten the institution, it seems to me something has to be said and there has to be a vote taken, whether it's censure or expulsion or something. Well, as as the Speaker said, we would have to take uh, action in the chamber. I don't believe that anybody who did play a role, and if it's documented, investigated, uh, should be able to serve in Congress. And actually, our Constitution says that within the 14th Amendment as well. But I also think, as the Speaker said in a press conference, that uh, those individuals would need to be prosecuted inside and outside of the chamber, if you will, and that that accountability would have to follow them even as uh, citizens uh, outside of the chamber. So, you know, this is all conjecture. We are waiting to see. I don't know how fast this will come out. Every day, I feel like there are new videos that show the enormity and the um, lawlessness and the cruelty of this mob, but also the conspiracy. If you saw the court documents that were filed in connection with three people that were just arrested, there was a command central. They filed, those charges indicate a conspiracy um, with individuals coordinating closely from the Oath Keepers and and others, um, and and really with tactical knowledge, with with clear tactical knowledge um, and a plan of, of what this attack was going to be. Last week on this program, Adam Kinzinger told us that he feels at greater personal risk because he voted to impeach the president. Do you? This is the second time I've voted to impeach the president. And the last time I was on the judiciary, I still am on the judiciary committee, but it went through a full committee you know, trial. And so, yes, I got many death threats at that time. I, honestly, Major, it's something... I, very sadly, uh, I have become used to in this time of this last four years of having to take on Donald Trump and the white nationalists and white supremacists who don't want to see somebody like me anywhere near Congress. I'm one of only 79 women of color that have ever served in the United States Congress since the founding of our country and one of only 14 immigrants. These individuals who stormed the Capitol, the insurrectionists, don't want to see somebody like me anywhere near the Capitol. And so I and others, uh, other women of color in particular have been facing this for four years. So this is not new to me. Um, I do wanna say that I really deeply respect Adam Kinzinger and uh, you know, for his courage, he's just so clear when I've seen him speak about this, that um, he doesn't need this job, you know, that he's not gonna say or do something because he wants to stay in the job, that his responsibility is to the constitution and to the country. And I just wish that there were more Republicans who were willing to say that. Don't forget two thirds of the Republicans in the house voted um, to overturn the election. So Congresswoman, I've had the privilege of covering politics in this city since 1990. And my first job for the better part of the first 10 years of my time here was to be in the Capitol every day. It's not only the most beautiful building in Washington, in my opinion, it's the most beautiful building in America. And I never imagined a day, even after 9-11, and I covered that, I was with George W. Bush in Sarasota that fateful and awful morning, and I came back to a much more militarized U.S. Capitol with lots of other security apparatus being put together. I never imagined I would see a day when the entire Capitol of the United States would be encircled, not just by fences, but by razor wire on top of those fences. We asked this to Congressman Kinzinger last week. He didn't know the answer. I wonder if you do. When do those fences and the razor wire come down? 
We do not know. And uh, I share your grief and your pain at not having this beautiful center of United States democracy available to, uh, to the public. Um, and, you know, a green zone in Washington, D.C., just down the road from, from us, there's a green zone there. And um, as, as much as President Biden tried to bring uh, normalcy to the inauguration, we're all aware that there were no people on the mall. There were no, um, you know, there, there were no throngs celebrating the peaceful transfer of power because it was so at risk. And we couldn't do that. We had to take these threats seriously as they were not taken seriously. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings at hundreds of stores, including Doc Martens, Ninja Kitchen, and Hotels.com. Prep for summer and save big on beauty, travel, electronics, and more. It's one of Rakuten's biggest cash back events, and it's on May 6th through May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. On January 6th. And so I think I don't know the answer to that because the reality is that there is still a lot of threat out there. As we know, there are still too many tens of millions of people across America who are participating in the lie of a fraudulent election and QAnon theorists and others who genuinely believe that it's now up to them to overthrow the government and to kill Democrats. That, that's out there from the FBI. And so um, I think, you know, hopefully we can, we can quickly return to a place where uh, people can have access to the Capitol again but also that we put in place a whole new set of security procedures so that we are very sure that we never have the kinds of failures, either explicit uh, or implicit, that happened on January 6th. That's the voice of Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, our special guest. I'm Major Garrett. Segment for The Takeout coming up in just a second. CBS News. This is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. The great state of Washington is our special guest. Congresswoman, let's talk policy now. Um, The biggest challenge facing the incoming Biden administration is dealing with the pandemic, and the biggest goal it has set before itself in the nation is 100 million vaccinations in the first 100 days. First of all, what has gone wrong with the vaccine rollout, and what do you believe this new administration will get right about it? Well, there are so many things. Uh, it goes back to if you don't think that the, uh, the the virus is actually a problem, then you can't defeat it. And there has been no central strategy from the federal government to develop the supplies necessary to produce enough of the vaccines to assist in that, to use the Domestic Production Act, and then to have a very clear distribution plan that are that is really put forward by the federal government and that states get resources to then implement that plan. So it's sort of been left up to every state. Um, I'm so proud of Washington State for the way we've handled the virus, given the lack of resources and direction. We, have, we are one of the states that has done better But still, our vaccine distribution in Washington state is not where the governor wants it to be, not where I want it to be. We need 
assistance from the federal government immediately to get the doses out. We've been lied to about how many doses were still there in reserve, as you know, uh, by Alex Azar. And so states were counting on more, more doses being delivered. They have not been delivered. We're not sure when our next set of doses is coming. Um, and so what this administration, the Biden administration has done is clearly said from day one, we are going to have a clear distribution uh, plan driven by the federal government with the resources of FEMA, the National Guard, um, given to states so that we can put in place big drive-through sites, but also the hiring of 100,000 public health workers, something that I helped negotiate during last summer on the Biden-Sanders Unity Task Force that I co-chaired. Those public health workers will be able to go out into places where people can't go to a big drive-through site or to the hospital or whatever. So there is a very clear plan, plus the activation of the Defense Production Act um, so that we have all the supplies that we need in order to get the vaccine distributed and a shot in, in every person's arm. 100 million in 100 days, attainable or aspirational? Well, first we have to pass the COVID relief package that uh, President Biden has put forward. Um, I'm very proud as the chair of the Progressive Caucus that it contains many of our progressive priorities. We need to pass that immediately. There is no time to waste because we need the resources, the money, um, and all of the other things that are going to be required for people to make it through. So that's the first thing we need to do. If we could do that right away, Major, then I believe it's attainable. It's not easy, but it's attainable with dedication that I believe the Biden administration will bring. With your indulgence, Congresswoman, I'm going to ask the audience to journey with me and just to a little bit of procedural weediness in Washington, because it's really important. If you care about this package, and maybe you do and maybe you don't, but either way, its fate will be determined by a decision that will be made by the Biden administration and the Democratic leadership in Congress. So there's two ways you can do this. You could bring it to the floor and ask Republicans to participate and vote for it in the House. House can pass it either way, any way it wants. But if it gets to the Senate, if it doesn't come within what's called reconciliation, which is a special budgetary means of handling certain types of legislation, it has to get 60 votes. Without reconciliation, it doesn't. It can pass with a simple bare majority. And everyone now knows, or you should, that the bare majority of the Senate is 51 with a tie-breaking vote of Vice President Kamala Harris on the Democratic side. So, Congresswoman, put very succinctly to you, what are the conversations within Democratic House Caucus and your Senate colleagues and the White House? Do you wait around for Republicans to jump on board or do you say, look, you've got like five minutes and if you're not on board, we're going to go reconciliation. We're going to move this as fast as possible. Well, obviously, those conversations are going on right now. But I will tell you that we have an urgent crisis and we need to pass this package quickly. As you said, we can start it in the House we can pass the full package uh, you know, with whatever changes strengthening we wanna do. We don't need Republicans to do that. Um, if some wanna come along, great. And then I think we should use every tool in the toolbox. Remember that Republicans don't use a uh, 60 vote majority when they want to pass their GOP tax scam. Um, and I think that this is an urgent situation where we should consider, first of all, reforming the filibuster that requires a 60 vote majority, but also in the immediate term, 
uh, do everything we can. And if we need to pass it by budget reconciliation because the Republicans are not coming along with us, then let's do that. Because at the end of the day, the question is, are we going to get these vaccines in people's arms? Are we going to get money in people's pockets? Are we going to get assistance to small businesses and make sure that people aren't getting kicked out of their homes um, by giving rental assistance and so much more that's in this package that's necessary? And I believe the answer has to be yes and right away. So there might be some in my audience who might reasonably say to themselves, well, I hear you, Congresswoman, but didn't wasn't in the last days of the last Congress, didn't they pass 900 billion or some number? I remember it sounded really big. If I have any memory of it, it's like four trillion in spending in the last calendar year. Do we need another two trillion? They might just ask that, wonder that. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, uh, every major economist um, of both sides has uh, has said that if we are going to dig ourselves out of the hole, and remember, Major, if we had done the big packages that we needed, the HEROES Act in last summer, we may not have needed as much as we do now. But as the economy has dived further and further, with 1 million people every week losing their jobs, small businesses closing every single day, and people getting kicked out of their homes, not being able to pay utilities, and the virus continuing to surge. I mean, now we're talking about 4,000 Americans who are dying daily from the virus. So the reality is the last administration didn't take any of this seriously. And we got ourselves into a giant hole and most economists agree that it's gonna take three and a half to four and a half trillion dollars Um, If you really think about all the things that are going to need to be done, as well as a uh, recovery package, we're talking about a relief package, but then there's a recovery package of putting people back to work and really jumpstarting our economy again. So I want to ask you this in the final minute and a half we have, uh, because you are the leader of the Progressive Caucus, you supported Bernie Sanders during the Democratic primary. Is this administration to your reckoning a progressive one or not? Well, they, they have already come out of the gate with many of our priorities. And so we are delighted to be working very closely with them, uh, talking very closely with them about all the priorities. But let's be clear, uh, on immigration reform, Joe Biden has put forward a really progressive proposal for immigration reform that we support and have been pushing for. He articulated the need to pass a $15 minimum wage. These were all things, by the way, that we've been working with the campaign over the last six months to really deliver the most progressive platform of any president in recent history. So it's not to say that there won't be some uh, areas that we're gonna wanna strengthen. There are gonna be times when we're out in front of the Biden administration, times when we're behind pushing hard, but we are thrilled to have uh, the Biden-Harris administration take on and commit to so many priorities that people may call progressive major, but frankly, they're just necessary for the country to achieve racial, economic, and gender justice. That is the voice of Pramila Jayapal, Democratic Congresswoman from the great state of Washington, our special guest for our radio audience. This is all The Takeout, but for those watching on CBSN and our podcast platform, stay tuned for The Takeout Outtake Especial. CBS News. This is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. 
Our special guest, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal of the great state of Washington. She is a Democrat. She's leader of the Progressive Caucus within the House of Representatives. So we talked for nearly an hour, Congresswoman. We didn't even say anything about impeachment except to say who voted for it. What are your expectations as a House member? I know you've voted for it. The articles have yet to be delivered. What are your expectations of that delivery date and the trial itself? Well, I think the speaker will make the final decision. I think obviously we need to get some cabinet secretaries in place, but I hope that impeachment uh, articles are delivered quickly, that the trial takes place quickly, and that we convict, the Senate convicts Donald Trump quickly of incitement of insurrection, because that is what needs to happen. Let me just say this to the people who say, you know, well, shouldn't we just move on Um, in case that was going to be your next question? I would just say there is no unity without accountability and there is no reconciliation without truth. And imagine the signal that it would send to future presidents to say, well, you know what, as long as you incite the insurrection right around the election and then just keep inciting and keep, you know, refusing to admit that this, that this was a legitimate election, you'll be fine because we're not going to take you on in the last days of your presidency or even after you've left. We have to hold this last president accountable for what he did, the most damage to our constitution and our democracy in recent history. And with that conviction, if it were to occur, in your mind, that would mean he would be barred from running for federal office again? That is a separate vote that the Senate would have to take if they vote to convict, as you know. So um, that I, I believe that somebody who has been convicted of uh, incitement of insurrection should not ever be allowed to serve. Absolutely. Um, Because, you know, I I just can't say again, how close our democracy came to crumbling, to overthrowing our government. And we still face significant challenges ahead of us in helping people to understand that those are, that is not truth. That's why Joe Biden had to spend so much of his time in his speech on truth and the facts. So we've got a long road to go, but convicting Donald Trump and making sure he never serves in office again is a critical piece of accountability and truth. And when you say people need to understand how close we came, I think it's worth underscoring what the intent was of those who came inside the Capitol. The intent was to, by some means or mechanism, take the procedure of the Congress ongoing at the moment hostage delay it, and then occupy long enough for Congress to reject the electoral votes it was counting. That was the aim, correct? That's exactly right. It was to delegitimize and to uh, ensure that the will of the people, remember, it's we the people. This is the, the beautiful thing about our democracy is we the people. The will of the people determines the president of the United States. And there was a very specific call to ensure that that never happened and to throw the country into chaos that would then allow for Donald Trump to stay as president, even though he did not win the election. Right. Uh, He did not. uh, And it wasn't even close. And I know there are those who say, well, you know, he got all these votes and those people should be taken heed of. Uh, Yes, that is true. And a general sense. But I don't remember a lot of Republicans saying, you know, John Kerry got 7 million more votes than Al Gore did when he ran in 2004. 
He didn't become president, but by gosh, we really have got to understand all the concerns of those extra 7 million people who voted for John Kerry because he didn't get to be president. I mean, that is a backwards conversation. Yes, it's relevant, but it's not more relevant than the candidate who won and who assumes the responsibilities and burdens of the presidency. I know that sounds slightly editorial, but I think it's mostly rooted in civics. That's right. It is rooted in civics. And that brings up a whole nother conversation about how we really strengthen education in this country and make sure people understand exactly how this process works. I am in favor of getting rid of the electoral college. That's separate from anything that happened on January 6th. But January 6th, in my mind, just cemented the need to do that. But we have the system we have. And Joe Biden won both the electoral college and the popular vote the first president to do so in a while. And I think that we have to make sure that people understand that not only was this an attempt to overthrow the legitimate results of the election, but it was a violent assault. And both those things together are quite terrifying. There was a crowd driven by Donald Trump and his words about Mike Pence, uh, you know, essentially being a traitor by refusing to do what he was, <laughs> what he had no authority to do, by the way, to overturn the results of the Electoral College. Um, but there was a crowd chanting to hang Mike Pence with a gallows and a noose set up. So I, I just think that all of these pieces um, paint a dark picture but uh, of where we are in this country. But at the same time, I don't serve an office because I'm a pessimist about America's future. I serve in office at the pleasure of my constituents because I really believe, as an immigrant who came to this country when I was 16 years old by myself, I really believe that America is the only place in the world where so many ideals have come together to form this picture of a more perfect union. And it is the only place in the world that I see where we are constantly striving for that and where someone like me could have the opportunity I've had. And my commitment is to hold up that light in the words of Amanda Gorman, to see that light and to be that light. I know my producers want me to wrap up, but I wanna ask one more question because I wanna have it on the record because there were those Republicans who, when they were talking about the necessity of challenging the electoral count, pointed to you and your actions on the floor in 2017, objecting on behalf of the votes certified from Georgia. Vice President Biden asked you on the floor, did you have a Senate a co-objector, you did not, and that was shut down. But they pointed to that as saying, see, when Democrats do it, it's all great. And when we do it, we're trying to subvert democracy. I want your response. Yeah, totally different situations because in every other case, except this one, the, uh, the competitor for the presidency had already conceded. So in other words, when we did it, Joe Biden, who was presiding over the House and the Senate of the joint session, had already conceded, excuse me, Hillary Clinton had already conceded. And so that is true of every situation in the past. This is the first time where the person who lost the election, that's Donald Trump, just to be clear, Donald Trump lost the election, that individual was refusing to concede. So that turns it from an opportunity to draw attention to voter suppression and things that might exist to an actual attempt to overthrow the results of the election. 
two completely different situations. This is the first time in history that a sitting president has refused to concede the election and then incited his party to essentially overturn the election. So very different situations. And thank you for asking about it because I know sometimes there's the attempt to make the two the same. They are not the same. Any regrets about doing that in 2017 now, looking back? Um, no, not really. I mean, because again, you know, we, we didn't even uh, work to get a senator to, to sign our objection. So we knew very well that the objection would not be overturned. And I think there were legitimate issues that we wanted to raise in order for us to address legislatively a very different tactical strategy um, than, than what Republicans were trying to do, what Donald Trump was trying to do. That is the voice of Pramila Jayapal, Democratic Congresswoman from the great state of Washington, our special guest here at the Takeout. Congresswoman, always great to see you. Thanks so much for your time. We'll see you around the Capitol soon, I hope. Thank you so much, Major. Great to be with you. Thank you. That's it, folks. We'll see you next week. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seegers, and Daniel Peebles. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS Audio. If you like the takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.